Last week I started uh, talking about uh, transformation. This uh, past summer, I spent the whole summer talking about the challenges we face in American culture, and there are many, and we took about 10 weeks to cover that. And so last Sunday, I started another series talking about transformation on several levels, personal, national transformation, uh, marriage transformation. We're going to talk about that today. Um, uh, family transformation, personal transformation. Jesus came to transform life, and I can just tell you, he absolutely uh, jerked a chain in me and changed who I am. So uh, uh, anyway, I will talk about marriage transformation. Susan and I, again, have been married for 40 years today, and, you know, I just can I just talk about that a few minutes? So I took some time this week and, and just sat down and uh, and just jotted down some things that, you know, kept us going through the, uh, you know, the tough things of life. Life is challenging for all of us. It's not always easy, and uh, you come upon so many challenges. So, just want to talk about some things that uh, that made uh, that made life uh, worth keeping on in. And so, uh, I want to talk about some clear points that have kept us going over the years. First of all, before I do that, here's a biblical basis for marriage. So, so anybody that says anything about human beings being married, here the word marriage was coined by God. Right here, Genesis chapter 2, uh, verse 21 through 25, New Living Translation. So the Lord God caused a man to fall into a deep sleep, the man he created, Adam. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs, closed up the opening, uh, then the Lord God made the woman from the rib and brought her to the man and said, at last, I think Adam really said, wow, but nonetheless, at last, the man exclaimed, this is bone of my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man out of all creation. That's the only time that, a hu- that something was taken from something already created, God God created all of life, animal life, vegetable life, then human life, creating Adam from the dirt. But the woman never came from the dirt. She came from the side of the man, from his rib. Now, that's pretty amazing. God intended that marriage be the closest relationship known to man. And God made it that way. And then verse 24, God said, This explains why a man leaves his father and mother is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now, the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And then uh, a sequel to that scripture in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5. I've probably done over 100 weddings in uh, the tenure of my uh, time in ministry since 1981. And um, often I have read, in fact, in our uh, marriage ceremony 40 years ago, this scripture was read, uh, King James. But this is Philip's translation. Listen to Ephesians 5. It kind of sets the bar for what marriage should be like. So, so let me just set the tone here. You may be single. How many know this can help you if you're single? You may be married one day. You may be divorced. And how many know God loves people that are divorced and understands the challenges that you've gone to, uh, through, the emotional wrenching that you've experienced? God understands that. And how many know God can heal a broken heart? How many know that? And then you may be here and you're widowed and, uh, you know, your spouse died before you and, and here you are, you find yourself alone. How many know we're really never alone? The Lord is always with us, but we miss that human companionship. The Lord can help you in the middle of that. And then, or you just may be here and you've been married for a small period of time or a long period of time, or you may be engaged. Anything I say here can help all of us regardless of where you find yourself. So Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul kind of sets the bar for the relationship called marriage, which again should be the closest relationship 
that we have in life. Listen to what he says. J.B. Phillips translated the New Testament in 1958. That's the year I was born. I love this translation. You wives must learn to adapt yourselves to your husbands as you submit yourselves to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife the same way that Christ is head of the church and Savior of the body. The willing subjection of the church to Christ should be reproduced in the submission of wives to the husbands. But remember, this means the husband must give his wife the same sort of love that Christ gave to the church. How many women said yes to that? When he sacrificed himself for her, Christ himself uh, gave himself to make her holy, having cleansed her through the baptism uh, of his word to make her altogether a glorious church in his eyes. She is to be free from spots, wrinkles, or any other disfigurement. A church holy and perfect men ought to give their wives the Love they naturally have for their own bodies. Now, that's a big thing to say. The love a man gives his wife is the extending of his love for himself to enfold her. Nobody ever hates or neglects his own body. He feeds and looks after it. That is what Christ does for his body, the church. And we are all members of that body. We are his flesh and blood. And then he quotes Genesis 2. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. The marriage relationship is doubtless a great mystery, he says, but I'm speaking of something still uh, deeper still, the marriage of Christ and his church. In practice, what I, ha I have said amounts to this. Let every one of you who is a husband love his wife as himself, and let the wife reverence her husband. Last, uh, yesterday, I have a blog. If you've never read it, go check it out, MitchHorton.com. Yesterday in my blog, I uh, mentioned uh, Ephesians 5.33, there, there are two directives there, one to the husband, one to the wife. And, and it's addressing the innate needs of both uh, may, uh, the w wife and then the husband. And the innate need of a woman is to be loved. A woman is created by God to be, to be a, a receiver and she receives the love of her husband. So I like to say it this way, the responsibility for love in the home rests on the husband and because the wife's greatest need is to be loved and the, the uh, husband's greatest need is to be respected. He just needs to hear some attaboys on occasion. How many hear me, sir? Check out the blog. I talked about that yesterday. But I sat down this week and just thought about uh, just a few things that help uh, keep us on the, on, on the straight and narrow with respect to our marriage over the past 40 years. And uh, so I've got 10 things that I just wrote down that really helped us stay together and, and make it work. Um, you know, over the years, the 1984 was my first uh, ministry position in a church. It was in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We had thousands of people in the church, and I did counseling for the pastor. And as I counseled and did a lot of reading, obviously, as a young man starting out in ministry, there were four major areas that I found that if people are going to have problems, they're going to have problems in these four areas. So um, in fact, as I counseled for the pastor, most often uh, people came in because they had marriage issues and marriage challenges. How many know marriage problems are not a problem? I've had people come in and say, well, we just have a problem marriage. You know what they did? They just, they just put the responsibility off of themselves to make changes. No, marriage problems aren't a marriage. It's people problems. A marriage is composed of two people who come from two different backgrounds, two different ways of living, two different sets of parents who do things completely different, two perhaps different ways of communicating, and somehow they amalgamate into one. How many know that can produce some huge challenges? And so, uh, and so as I thought about it and as I, I talked to people and read a lot, there were two, four 
top problem areas, not in any certain order, uh, religion, children, money, sex. Those are the four major areas and a, a bottom line underlying component in most marriage challenges are uh, inability to communicate properly. So there's a whole lot to say there. I could do a series on all of that and go for weeks and weeks and weeks. But just for a few minutes today, we'll look at 10 things that really I think have helped Susan and I. And uh, I didn't consult with her with this list. So Susan, you got a microphone right there, right? So I'm going to invite her to pipe in anything she wants to disagree with me on or say, let's clarify then, Susan. You know, you need to press that bottom thing on the mic. Mira's not here this time to help you, but somebody can help you. It's the left one on the bottom left. If you'll just press it, it'll turn green. There you go. She said, I got it, Mitch. Leave me alone. So 10 things. Number one, we left our parents. How many know that's important? Genesis 2, 24. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. And, you know, one thing I appreciate about Susan's parents, they're both with the Lord now. My mother is with, she actually lives with Susan and I and has for, what, for five years, be six years in January. And, uh, but both sets of parents, when we were married, one thing I deeply, deeply appreciate about them is they did not try to intrude into our personal lives. Some parents, some parents are so doting and so uh, invasive that they don't let a new family form and they just kind of want to tell their, their, uh, their children what to do after they get married. And how many know there's a new family unit created when you get married, yes or no? And you just got to let it go through the nip and tuck of life and the tough stuff to learn. And, and just got to let them go and do it. And you got to turn loose the apron strings, so to speak. Uh, one thing our parents never did is they never dangled the money carrot in front of us and said, well, if you'll do this, you got this money or do that. Yeah. Don't, that's called manipulation and control. How many know it doesn't belong in a marriage? Other thing that helped us was uh, nine months after we were married, we moved to, I went to another Bible school in Oklahoma, Tulsa, and we moved 1,200 miles away from anybody we knew, including all of our parents. Our parents lived 14 miles apart, and, uh, you know, that helped us leave and join together because we just had each other. And, you know, we didn't have uh, internet, you didn't have cell phones, you had hardline phones, and long distance calls. How many remember the time that long distance calls cost a lot? And so we didn't get to call home a whole lot. And uh, so, you know, we kind of learned to fend for ourselves and, and just learned that we, uh, we had to, you know, take life by the horn, so to speak, and make it happen. I would go to my father. And one thing I really appreciate about my dad, and I miss him a lot. He's been gone for seven years to heaven. And uh, one thing I'm, I miss about him, he was just a, a, the most practical man that you would ever meet in your whole life. And uh, I would go to him and say, Dad, look, I, I need some advice Except, you know, yada, 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 talk about this, that. He said, well, Mitch, you need to make your decision, son. He never would tell me what to do about anything in life. He said, you know what? You you need to make that decision because once you make it, you're responsible for how it turns out. Now, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I said, well, Dad, and, and you know, I really, really appreciated that. Because he never tried to tell me how to live my life. He didn't tell me how to, how to treat my wife and what to do in family. He showed me by loving my mother. How many hear me? But when I went to him for advice, it was like, it was like well, you know, you, you, you need to make your choices and decisions. I said, Dad, I get that. And sometimes I would go further and say, Dad, I mean, you know, so, so if you were in this scenario and this happened, what would you do? I mean, just give me some ideas. And he said, Mitch, well, well now, if you frame it that way, 
If I was in that situation, Yadi, I'd think about this, I'd think about this, I'd think about this, I'd think about this. He said, Mitch, you need to take that and find out what God's saying to you. And you need to do what you feel like is right. And whatever you do, I'll support you. And, you know, our parents were just kind of like that. And, um, and I really, really appreciated uh, both Susan's parents and my parents. They never uh, forced themselves on us. Uh, sometimes, sometimes parents can come in and try to control the relationship. If you have a controlling parent, how many know they want to control everything around them, including their children after they're married? And thankfully, neither one of our parents ever did that. But listen, I have counseled dozens and dozens of couples who have issues with in-laws, and uh, the in-laws become outlaws, and then they do some really challenging things to the relationship. So we left our parents. My encouragement is... Uh, is leave your parents and, and let your spouse be your best friend. We did that. We had to learn to talk things out. Learn to, I had to learn how to make decisions without other people's input except for Susan's. And, you know, it helped me grow up. I was 20. I turned 21 the next month after we got married. And it's been all these years. Number two, we decided that divorce was not an option. Now, that was a big deal uh, to both Susan and me. Malachi chapter 2, listen to this, and I like this New Living Translation. It says, didn't the Lord make you, uh, make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you are His. And what does He, what does the Lord want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart, remain loyal to the wife of your youth. And then this first part of the, verse 16, for I hate divorce. Now, I read that as I'm reading through my Bible as a young man. God hates divorce. So Susan and I, before, when I asked her to marry me, we had lots of conversations. My encouragement, if you're not married and you're contemplating marriage, get with whoever that person is and you talk about everything, the good, the bad, the ugly, the indifferent things you did. And try to think of things you hadn't thought about yet. We talked about all the major subjects of life. And one thing we came across one day was, you know, we're going to obviously disagree and um, we're not going to see eye to eye at some point after we're married. And so I said, Susan, you know what? Let's make a choice right now that uh, as much pressure as life may bring. And let me just say that normal marriage in today's culture has pressure on it. But if you're in ministry, there's quadruple pressure. It's incredible. And I said, you know, as much as life may bring pressure, I will never let the D word, divorce word, come out of my mouth. And she agreed, said, I won't either. So we made a decision before we were married. If trouble came, the solution is not divorce. How many know divorce does not solve problems? All it does is take you away from the pressure that the life stuff brought and it, it, it brings a pseudo or false sense of peace. But a person can go from relationship to relationship, marriage to marriage, and never solve the problems that cause friction in their relationship. How many hear me? So just because there's friction, if you're married, doesn't mean... And what does that mean? That means you need to, I need to work on me. When Susan and I have had friction, that's a telltale sign. I can't change her and she can't change me, but I can change me. I can adjust my attitude, right? So we made the choice, you know, divorce is not an option. And again, if you're divorced because of problems, just, just the ins and outs of life, you know, you're going to take that problem from one relationship to another relationship. So divorce doesn't solve problems. Sometimes, sometimes it creates more. And if you get remarried instead of, and not deal with the problem, you know, it crops back up again. So the issue is how many know we need to deal with the issues that create the friction sometimes? How many hear what I'm saying? 
So we decided that uh, the divorce is not an option. And we didn't use, some people use divorce as a trump card. Well, if you don't, so and so and so, I'm going to divorce you. Well, you know what? That's dumb. Don't do that. That's the wrong thing to say. Uh, that's never should be the solution. In fact, again, divorce doesn't create solutions. And again, many of us, in fact, uh, the stats are not good. Uh, the majority of people in our congregation have probably suffered through divorce. Either, either you've been divorced yourself or you're in a family that has been affected by divorce. Your mom, your dad, your siblings. Susan and I are actually the... The only ones in our family with our brothers and all that. Uh, we're the only ones that are married all this time. The other ones, uh, a divorce affected their lives and, and uh, they had to deal with that. So by the grace of God, we've been able to stay together. But we made a, a decision that divorce wouldn't, wouldn't be one of the solutions to problems. We, and we've, and we've, never, we've never brought it up. My pastor in Tulsa back in the 80s when he would talk about the subject of marriage and such, and he would go over there to Malachi 2, where I just read one of the things he said, I never forgot it, and I was a young man, and I, I mean, we didn't have anything when we started out. He said, divorce is a tool for the devil to steal the blessings of God and the prosperity that God could bring into your life. I said, wow, man. Well, that just, you know, clenched the nail on the other side of the board. Divorce is not an option. We're going to deal with our problems forthrightly. So you may be here, you're married, and you've got some challenges. There's friction right now in your relationship. And let me say this, friction comes whether you want it or not. How many hear me? Life brings friction. You're moving forward. You know, there's friction. You're in your car. You're rolling down the road. There's friction on the tires when the rubber meets the road. And that's the way life is to all of us. And you just got to be willing to... You know, bend with the, with the ebb and flow of life and, and think about yourself first. For me, when we've had challenges, I always think about, okay, God, what do I need to do to change? I can't change. Listen, I've tried to change Susan, and I found out I can't do that. And when I do, I'll get in trouble. And uh, Susan's never tried to change me, right? <laughs> but you know what? We found out we can change each other, and we can we can deal with ourselves. So again, divorce has not been an option for us to deal with the things in life. Number three, we still date each other. And we started dating, you know, before we got married. We just made a decision after we got married. You know, we're just going to keep, let's just keep dating. Why do you date somebody? What do you do when you date somebody in American culture? You put your best foot forward. You make sure you, you know, took a good shower if you're a man and put some cologne on and put your, you know, and put some nice clothes on. You got your best behavior going on. And then you want to take your girl to a nice place. And, and you know, you want to make her feel good about life because you want to win her. There are no guarantees if you're dating, right? Right? So, you know, we dated and, you know, I, I wooed her. And I said, I'm your man. I want to be your man. Well, after we got married and I got her, I thought, you know, what better thing to do than just keep dating her and let her know lifelong, I'm her man. I love her. And I'm going to give my best for her. So, you know... All through the years of life, um, five years into our relationship, we started having children. And, uh, and then even after we had kids, we eventually had four. They're all grown and married. Now, they were in the first service. All three of our four were in the first service. And, um, but, you know, even after we had kids, we still dated. And we still date to this day. And, uh, you know, ministry is an unusual um, uh, occupation to hold because you know you take your work home with you you live with it 24 hours a day seven days a week weekends are not your own weekends are your busiest times you're spending Saturday getting ready for Sunday and then you got church activities all day Sunday so for us we've always taken Friday night and my kids knew Friday night my friends knew Friday night that's us 
Uh, that's me and her. And I'll, we'll do something. If we didn't have any money, we tried to find something on the cheap. But we did something every week just to, just to get along. And many times we felt like we didn't have the money, but we hired a babysitter when the kids were home. And, and uh, you know, we dated week after week after week after week. How many know if you want the, the flame of love between you and your spouse, if you're married, if you want that flame of love to stay strong, how many know you got to feed it? I mean, if you got a fire in a fire pit in the back of your house, I mean, you got and you putting some, uh, you got some logs on the fire. How many know you got to stoke the fire? You got to move those logs around a little bit. You got to make sure it's got some air. You make sure that you add some more logs. Well, you got to do the same thing to any relationship. You don't just fall in love and suddenly I just love you. It doesn't work that way. It takes. There's a lot of sweat that goes in loving somebody as long as we've loved each other. How many hear me? And is it easy? Not always. Do you always feel it? Not always. I don't wake up every morning and Susan doesn't either for the past 40 years and say, I just love you. Sometimes it's, I want to slap you. <laughs> is that true? But we made a commitment, you know what, through thick and thin, we're going to make it. How many hear me? But you got to work on it. So we, we've dated, always dated, and uh, you want to keep that flame alive. Number four, we didn't put our children before each other. Now, years ago, actually back in the 70s, there was a guy in, uh, in uh, Canada that wrote a book that became very popular in the late 1970s, and the book was simply called Priorities. And the guy's thesis for the book was, it was a Christian guy, and, uh, and a lot of people read it. I got it as a young man in my early 20s and read the book. Oh, it was a good book. But his thesis was, you know, you got priorities in life and you need to, and you need to keep life prioritized properly or you're going to run into problems. So people, and his thesis was, you know, you run into problems with your marriage, with your family, with your children when you get your priorities out of line. And he said, well, here's how you figure out what your priorities are. I'll just cover the first three. He said, what is the highest priority that should be in any human's life? God. So why? Because God, that's, the etern- that's the longest relationship that you have in your life. So the guy's idea was uh, order your priorities according to the length of the relationship that you have with that person. So because we have an eternal relationship with God, how many know we're supposed to seek first the kingdom of God? And his righteousness. So put the Lord first in your life. In everything you do. And it colors everything else. Then he said the second order of priority is your spouse. Why? Because once you marry. You're supposed to marry. The idea is in mind. Not till you have a problem but lifelong. Yes or no? Now that's what we had in mind. So I've always put God first. Susan second. Then what's the third Third longest relationships in your life is your children. You've got your children between 18 and 20 years under your roof in your household. And then they go to school and then they're on their own and and, uh, hopefully get married, yada, yada, yada. But while they're there, they're your responsibility. And here's here's what I see parents do. They, they, they get busy with life. They have their first child. And Susan and I had three. We have four children, you know, stair-stepped them, 84, 86, 88. We missed a stair-step, 92. And then, you know, in the 90s, all of our children are small and, and they're really young. And, uh, and it's really easy. How many know when you have a baby? I mean, you got a, that woman, man, she gives her life. She gives her life for that child. She's up in the middle of the night to feed that baby. You got to change the baby's diapers. Hopefully, hubby says, teach me how to change those nasty diapers. And he helps her, right? A smart husband's helped change diapers, right? A dumb husband doesn't touch them. Right, huh? 
I thought I'd get some amens from the women anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, uh, it takes a lot of time. And, you know, you got to watch after the baby and put them to bed, get them up, change their diapers, feed them incrementally on and on and on. It takes so much time that it's not difficult to, to rearrange priorities until the baby usurps the place that the spouse should have. How many know it's true? And then the more babies you have, it's like, I ain't got time for you. Leave me alone, man. I got to feed this child. I got to, I got to clean his rump. I got to go make dinner. I got to do this. And you think I got time for you? <laughs> Get out of here. No, no, you do that. How many know you can lose the whole thing? So we didn't put our children before each other. In fact, uh, some people, as the children grow up, they begin to live for their children. And then, you know, after they, they leave the baby stage and they go into childhood and then adolescence and they get older, then parents become the taxi for their kids. And you got extracurricular this and extracurricular that. You got ball games, you got music assignments, you got this and that. And the parents find themselves running crazy and frantic here, there, everywhere. And it's easy to lose your priorities. And you know, I sometimes I see parents today, they're so involved in their children's lives, all they do is talk about their children. One day there's children that are going to grow up and they're going to be out of the home and you'll look at each other one day and say, who are you? Well, I'm the person that gave you the kids. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, where have you been? I've been raising your youngins that you gave me. You don't want that to happen. That's why, that's why you don't put your children before your spouse because the empty nester syndrome comes along. When all the kids are gone, you don't want to ask that question, who are you, right? So we didn't put our children before each other. Number five, we did not allow strong disagreeing conversations in front of our children. So before Susan and I were married, we talked about children in detail. I mean, Susan told me up front, uh, I think we ought to have four. I said, I think we ought to have two. She said, I think we ought to have four. I said, well, I think we ought to have three. She said, I think we ought to have four. I said, I think we ought to have three. She said, I think we ought to have four. I said, I think we ought to have four. So we had one, then we had two, then we had three. And then I was real happy with three. It's like, you know, we're busy with three. We got plenty going on. And I, I looked at Susan one day and I said, uh, are you happy with three? She said, no. I said, well, I am. Oh, said, oh, Lord. She said, well, I'm not. And then I was bathing two of her kids. I was bathing two of our kids. <laughs> True story, 7.30 at night. I mean, y'all, we've been through some hard knocks. She was working at a hospital. She's a medical technologist. Worked at a hospital, I think, 7 to 7, something like that. And then I had to take care of all the kids. And I picked them up from school. Uh, I, uh, I made the dinner for the evening. And then I fed them, and then I had to bathe all of them, and then I sang to them, read to them, put them all to bed, you know. And I'm in the middle of that routine one night, and uh, it's 7.30 at night because I just looked at my watch, and I got two of my girls, I got them in the bathtub, and they're taking a bath, and I'm bathing them. And, you know, I'm going through my little routine. The phone rings. It's right beside me. Hello. And Susan says, are you sitting down? I said, uh, well, I'm bathing your young'uns. And she said, I'm pregnant. I said, I gotta go. <laughs> oh, yeah. Four, number four showed up, 1992. And, you know, I'm just saying that we, you know, we talked about children before we got married. We talked about how we disciplined them. 
Well, we talked about uh, values we wanted to place in them. We talked about what kind of parent we, we would be, again, what kind of disciplinarian, what school would look like, and, and you know, just et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We just tried to talk about everything. And, and you know, then, uh, and then when the rubber met the road, you know, there's some things I figured out we hadn't talked about yet. And uh, so many times, Susan and I, his kids, you know, you got three or four of them sitting around, according to what year it is, and, and uh, we're talking about this or that, and, and the kids would bring something up, and I would think, you know, Susan and I hadn't talked about that yet, and here's Susan. If she doesn't agree with me and the kids are there, we never, this is the next point, what was it? The next point was we do not allow strong, disagreeing conversations in front of our children. So here we are, we're sitting there, and... Uh, the kids are bringing something up, and, and I'm thinking, now what's Susan think about this? And the, so I made a comment to the kid, and I, all I have to do is cut my eyes to Susan. And when I cut my eyes, if she disagrees with me, I can just see she's got these facial expressions. Or maybe it's just kind of put eyebrows up. Or sometimes it's just body language. She gets real rigid, like, I said, oh, man. And so I knew real quick, well, you know, I told the kids, I said, well, now, now mom and I need to talk about this. Because I could tell I've got two sentences out and those are enough. <laughs> Susan's body language, her facial expression, that's enough, Mitch. But we never did it in front of the kids because you know what? If you want to have a nice family and a good home life, you don't allow your kids to pit you one against another. How many hear that? How many know kids are un- have an uncanny ability to read between the lines? Yes or no? And so, and so many times, you know, uh, one of my children, you got some strong-willed kids. Hey, Daddy, I want to do X, Y, Z. And, you know, tendency was, well, that sounds like a good idea. What time do you want to do that? Three o'clock in the afternoon. Okay. Well, how long do you want to? Who are you doing it with? Well, so-and-so. I said, well, um, well, I don't know. I think we need to wait on that because we've got this coming up, that coming up. And, you know, the child obviously disappointed, walks away with, with shoulders humped down. And then, uh, and then a little bit later, you know, I'm, I'm somewhere else in the house, but I hear, I hear little, little steps. Walking up to the kitchen, there's Susan, she's cooking something. Hey, Mama, hey, Mama, I want to do so-and-so, and it's exactly the same thing they asked me. You know, I hear Susan say the first thing she said every single time, what did your dad say? And that's how we lived life. And, I, I, and we never had that problem of our kids pitting one against another, playing favorites or, you know, trying to get us to, get us to align ourselves with them against our spouse. We never, ever did that. We were, we were in agreement. It wasn't always easy. We had to go behind door, closed doors and sometimes had some strong disagreements, but we kept the voice down. How many know it makes your children feel awkward if you have strong conversations and you act like you're upset? It makes them feel insecure. And there's a lot of kids on drugs today because they're problems in the home. How many hear me? All of those labels they give kids, you know, well, that's a, that, that child's got emotional issues. Most of those emotional issues is because there's instability in the home. Greatest thing you can do for a child is love one another. And if you've got disagreeing opinions, talk behind closed doors where they can't hear you. Yes or no? We did that, really helped us, kept a lot of the friction down. Not that we didn't have the friction, but it kept it away from the kids and it kept us from pitting the kids from pitting one against another. Number six, we do not talk negatively about each other in public. How many know that's important? You know, my goal is to love my wife. And her goal is she wants to respect and love me as well. To do that, we never have, we never have uh, said negative things 
about each other to our friends or uh, in other social settings. We've respected one another. In fact, 1 Peter 3, 7, the first part of that verse, New Living Translation says this, in the same way you husbands must give honor to your wives. So the idea, you know, I'm married to Susan. I love her. She's married and she loves me. She wants me to feel good about life and about me. I want her to feel good about life and about her. And so I I always build her up. I don't say anything to tear her down. I don't defame her character with my words. I don't say things that that I don't mean in private or in public. So we have never, ever done that. And I've, I've, over the years, you know, been in certain relationships and been in certain social settings. And sometimes I can't believe what a wife would say about her husband to other people. And some husbands would say about their wives, we have never done that. And you know what it does? It makes Susan respect me and trust me. And it enables me to respect and trust Susan. Because, you know, we know, we just don't, we're just not involved in that kind of behavior. Love believes the best of every person. Number seven Keep your sexual life strong and private. When I was first married, listen to this, I went, I was working, I was going to school. I was going to school with an electronics engineer to college and then I changed and went to Bible school. It's where I met Susan and all that. And then, and then we got married and I was still working at the same place. And I went to work after we got married and one of the guys in the back room, he started talking about his wife and their personal life. And I thought, you know, this guy has no gray matter in his cranial cavity. This guy's totally stupid. He's talking about things he needs to shut up about. I mean, I was just 21 years old. I thought, that's dumb as dirt. I have never, ever, ever talked about our private life to anybody. The only body that knows, only person that knows anything is the Lord because he sees it all. Three principles from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Listen to the first five verses. Now regarding the question you ask in your letter, yes, it's good to abstain from sexual relations. And they had all kinds of problems in Corinth. They, had, they worshipped idols with, with sexual promiscuity in that whole city. It was a terrible thing. And then the apostle Paul said, but because there's so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, each woman should have her own husband. Then it says the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her uh, husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. And then he says, ends it by saying, do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to pray. Afterwards, you should come together again so Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And that's some real practical advice from the Apostle Paul. And it's, it works through all of the ages of time. Three principles to sex within the framework of marriage. Sex is a mess today. We've taken sex out of its box. And sex is the end of all, uh, all personal relationships. The closest thing known to man. All sex is is the icing on the cake called marriage that God gave you. How many hear me? And sex should be kept in the box. You take sex out of the box called marriage and sex can burn you, hurt you just like fire can outside of a box created container. How many hear me? And a lot of people have been burnt by sexual promiscuity and it'll hurt you sometimes lifelong. I've had people get into problems when they're young and they can't get out of them lifelong because they did the wrong thing with sex. How many hear me? 
So God created marriage for a husband and wife. One of the main reasons so, they, so that the sexual expression can be fulfilled. There are three principles to sex and marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Number one, the principle of need. And that is God places in every human a natural desire for the opposite sex. And the God-given natural desire is a male for a female and a female for a male. How many could agree with that? God God never, it is not of God and God does not give a man a desire for a man, nor does he give a woman a desire for a woman. That is a perversion. It is not found in Scripture and that's not what God said in Genesis chapter 2. God created the woman from the man, gave the man a desire for a woman and the woman a desire for a man. Yes? So the principle of need, because there is a sexual desire. I taught my children when they were young, to have a desire for sex is not sin. And as you age, you'll have a sex drive all of your life. Just watch what you do with it. Keep the fire in the box called marriage and don't mess with it outside the box. But I taught my kids, you know, sexual expression is right. The desire for sex is not sin. But what you do with it becomes sinful. So because of that, there's the principle of need. We have a sex drive. Number two, the principle of authority. That is, once a husband and wife are married, uh, my body no longer belongs to me, belongs to my spouse. My spouse's body, Susan's body doesn't belong to her, belongs to me. So that's the way it works in marriage. And that, that way you, you are sensitive to one another, sensitive to each other's sexual needs. And you should keep that going lifelong. And if you have problems, go find a third party and get some help. How many hear me? And I've encouraged people many times to go get some help because they've made a mess of that area of life before they got married and things are all a mess in the way they think about it and they need to get their thinking straightened out. So sometimes that's true. The principle of authority, so the principle of need, principle of authority, and then principle of habit. Sex relations should be regular in a marriage. Somebody always asks, well, how many times a week? I don't know. That's between you and your wife. Be satisfied, right? You and your husband. The principle of need, principle of authority, principle of habit. Let me end this one. Listen, I wrote this in my notes. Husbands, if you're never helped with the cooking, the cleaning, the children, buying the groceries, cutting the grass, taking out the trash, don't expect a lot of help when you close the bedroom door. Years ago, back in the early 80s, somebody wrote a book, Sex Begins in the Kitchen. How many hear me? Number eight, we give each other, Susan and I give each other some space to live life. I wrote this in my notes yesterday. It wasn't in there prior to that, but I wrote this one little phrase. Insecurity creates the need to cling. First relationship I had with a girl while I was 16 years old. I graduated from high school when I was 16. I was a senior in high school, and this was not a good girl. I'm not going into any detail. It's not Susan. Susan's a wonderful girl. But the first girl I had, you know what? She two-timed me, and I never knew if I could trust her outside of my eyesight, always wondering what she was doing, always wondering who she was with. And she eventually left me. I was dating her, and she eloped with another guy. So as a 17-year-old, that crushed me really hard. And then God had to renew my mind about male-female relationships. And I learned that, you know, when you love somebody, you trust them, then you give them some space to live life. You know, I love things that grow. I like grass, bushes, trees. I keep my yard up myself. But you know, with the roots of a plant, if you water the roots of a plant too much, you'll kill the plant. 
because there's no room for the roots to ingest oxygen as they ingest water and nutrition from the soil, right? In the same way with a relationship. If you cling to a relationship so closely, you smother the thing. Susan and I have always appreciated each other and trusted each other enough that she lets me have space. I got my guy friends. She's got her girlfriends. And, you know, I've got my hobbies. She's got her hobbies. And sometimes we just do things by ourselves because we need to. If we're always like this and you never can, let, let, let me breathe. You know, it, it makes it hard. So, you know, she's given me space. I've given her space over the years. And uh, we've allowed each other to have friends. Number nine. Now, this one's important. We never have alone time with the opposite sex. Ever. Ever. Ever since I've been married. I, I don't know. It became a law. I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. But I put myself under the law on this one. That means I don't eat meals alone with women. I don't drive in my car alone with another woman. I don't take a woman to lunch. How many hear what I'm saying? No, no, no. I love my wife enough and I respect her enough that I'm never going to be by myself with another woman. I mean, two's a date, three's a, three's a small group. We say in our small group setting stuff here. I just never did that, and Susan didn't either. Um, story is uh, my first professional job in ministry, if I don't like to use that term, but I, was, I had a ministerial position in that large church in Oklahoma, and uh, so my secretary, beautiful girl named Stephanie, and uh, I was counseling director. So we, um, we uh, redecorated a, a counseling center intake place. And we bought some couches, chairs, and all this stuff goes with it. And uh, so we had to go to a furniture store. And I said, Stephanie, just jump in the car. Let's go down to the furniture store. And I hadn't been working for a month, I know. And, and we got to the first stoplight. And I, Susan and I had been married for five years. That's the year we had Jonathan. And we got to the first stoplight. I looked at her. I said, this is dumb. She said, what? I said, you're in my car. It's a four-lane highway. I said, nobody knows that we're just going to the, gro- the, the furniture store and we're parked at the stoplight. We got thousands of people in the church. Somebody's going to see us here. And, well, there's, there's, there's Mitch with his secretary. They don't know we're going to the furniture store. We might be going out. I said, I can't wait to get you out my car. I did. And she said, well, I can't wait to get out. <laughs> So, man, we made a beeline back to church, got our own cars. Yeah. And I haven't done it since one time when we are in the other building, had a flat in my car, and nobody could help me but one of the ladies on staff. She came to pick me up, no kidding. I got in the back seat, rolled the window down, hung my head and my arm out like I'm one of them good old boys. So nobody would think I'm messing with her because I had to get back to church. So I only had to go a mile, but I don't do that. Close, too close to quarters for a man and woman not married, right? I don't do business lunches with women. I just don't do it. My staff team, I encourage them not to. We keep it clean. We have clear boundaries with the opposite sex. Susan does the same thing. Uh, with email and texting, I keep all of that above board and professional so that anybody's eye can see it. Yes or no? I don't care who you are, you're a female, you're communicating with me, that's just fine. Just know, just know my wife's eyes may be, may be looking at that. I'll never say or do anything. I don't do any personal information. How many hear me? I don't say things I wouldn't want anybody else or Susan to hear or read. 
right? And she does the same way with me. I mean, just setting this up to sing to her today, I had to, uh, you know, my children were corresponding with me and nobody knew and Susan didn't know. So Lindsay, it was, they were in our first service. And, uh, and so we had some texting going back and forth and Susan had gotten my phone to do something. And I grabbed that phone. I said, you ain't looking at that phone today. She said, you afraid for me to look at your text? I said, I'm not afraid if you look at my text messages. She said, well, you ought to. I said, you know, I won't be looking at them today. And I couldn't wait for today to tell her it's because my children, they had texted me about this morning to me singing to you. I just want to let you know, that was not a, um, that was, he gave that to me to read a text. I was not looking at your text She didn't messages. grab my phone, that's right. Just, yeah, to clarify. I don't check up on him, I <laughs> When I gave it to her, I said, oh my Lord, what have I done? I gave my phone to her. She's going to find out what I'm doing this morning. Number 10 we have developed the discipline, listen to this, of listening and talking. How many know it's a discipline to sit down and shut your mouth and listen? Yes or no? So I've got two things to say about this and, this and try to summarize this. You know, I've got a, ah, man, a forward, whatever, just aggressive personality, and I'm a perfectionist at heart. A perfectionist wants everything just right like this. And if you don't do it that way, you're just wrong. Now, that's my mindset when we got married. And I didn't know I put undue pressure on Susan. So we're years into our marriage. I come home and she's frantically trying to straighten up the kitchen, straighten up this and that, you know. And, and I'm thinking, well, where's the pressure? I'm the pressure. And I didn't realize I was putting it on her. So God rattled my cage pretty hard about my perfectionistic ways, basically saying, Mix, cool your jets. You're going to kill your wife and your children trying to force their personalities to be what your personality is. How many know the best way you can get along with your spouse is let them be who they are as separate from who you are and how you do life. And if you don't like the way they do life, the biggest thing you're going to do is show all of your teeth and smile. And they say, you like the way I live? I love the way you live. I just love the way you live. Because you got you to beat that beast down called your strong personality. How many hear me? 30-something, I don't know, 33 years ago or so, God got on my case. We'd been married for a number of years. Had a couple of kids. And I mean, God rattled me hard about perfectionism and expecting Susan to do everything just like me. Friends, that's not real life. That's not practical. And that puts undue pressure on the spouse. Yes or no? And then 20 years ago, you've heard me say this before, we were at a sea, I love seafood. So we were at a seafood place and sitting down having some seafood. We had all our kids were small and this was like 1998, if I remember correctly. And, and uh, we were just having a conversation and talking about this and that and, uh, you know, bantering things back and forth. And I will never forget, I don't remember what we were talking about, but I'll never forget Susan's sentence to me. She said, Mitch... And a real stern look. When Susan gets stern, you better listen. That's the sweetest woman you'll ever meet. But if she gets stern, she got something to say. And she looked at me and said, Mitch, I don't need you to fix me. I just need you to listen to me. And y'all, I did not have a comeback for the first time. I wanted to say, say that I got it the first time. And you know what, I, what, what she revealed to me? See, I fix things all day as a pastor. Uh, what do I do with this? What do I do with that? How do I do that? Blah, how do I do this? How do, what do I do? What do I do with this? Talking to other people. When I get home, I'm still in the let's fix it mode. She don't need the let's fix it mode. She needs, 
I just need somebody to talk to. I need the bouncing boy. And I found out about Susan's personality. She just likes to talk. When we're watching a movie, she is the commentator all through the movie. I'm wanting to say, would you please be quiet? I just want to watch the... But she say, what are they going to do? Why did they do that? How's that going to happen? How's that... I said, shh, shh, shh. Sometimes she's in the movie theater. What? How did they do that? Look! I said, Lord, have... And you know what I found out? That's just the way she is. And that plays into the idea that I need to let her talk. And it's not that she's even looking for an answer. But she appreciates the fact that I let her talk. And I, I, you know, I, I still struggle with it sometimes because that fix-it mode, I'm a Mr. Fix-It man. I'm a, I, I'm a gadget man. I can fix anything technically, and I want to fix everything about you. And I'm not supposed to do that, right? So she's really helped me with that. So those are ten things we develop, the discipline of listening and talking. We don't go to bed angry. We settle our differences And we have lots of differences. If you don't have differences, you're either a liar and you internalize everything and you're not being real or you're not human. And I think the first one's true. So, you know, be honest with each other. You don't have a depth of relationship unless you're honest. Yes or no? And a lot of people have surface stuff going on, but they never talk about the nitty-gritty of life. And they wonder why they don't have a satisfying relationship. Somebody, you need to bear, you be able to bear your heart to somebody should be your spouse. Yes or no? Lastly, as a close... Everybody stand up, because I will close if you stand up. Stand up. There we go. Number one, don't take this three things. Number one, don't try to change your spouse. If you try to change your spouse, it's, it's, uh, it's how to have a hard time. It's how to make yourself miserable. Accept your spouse the way they are without them being a clone of you. It's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. I always tell Susan, I married up. I married somebody smarter than me, prettier than me, wiser than me, better than me. I married up. Don't try to change Susan. She doesn't do the life the way I do it. I don't do the life the way she does it. Often opposites attract and get married to each other. There's a reason for that because it balances life out really well. Secondly, don't try to compare your spouse to someone else. Some people got this ideal person in their head when they're young and they keep that ideal spouse in their head lifelong and it never works out that way. Cut that person out of your head and love the person God gave you without expecting them to be like anybody else. How many hear me? Thirdly, pray for your spouse. And here's how you don't pray for yourself. Oh God, please change my wife. Oh God, oh God, please work in her life in Jesus' name. Lord, help her. Help her be what she needs to be. Help her to recognize all of her needs. No. All of her flaws. No. 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 No, here's how you pray. Lord, help me to be the best man she could ever have in her life. Help me to treat her the way you treat me. How many hear me? Husband prays for his wife that way. Wife prays for husband.